0: Welcome into another episode of Cyberly. I'm your host Blythe Bramley. Been on the show, we talk about B two B marketing, the attention economy, and how it all ties into the world of logistics. And we got a jam. Packed show for you today. So let me give you a little bit of a preview of what you can expect. First up, we've got digital marketing tactics that the top three PLs in the country are using. Last week we profiled carriers and their digital marketing tactics. This week we are doing the same for 3 PLs. So other businesses out there, if you are 3PL and you're not necessarily in, in the top 50 within the United States, you should be able to replicate some of these best practices that are seen on some of these top brands. Then we're going to be talking to Wasim Munayer. He is the CEO of the Moonair Group, a leading executive recruiting firm and also sponsor of Cyberly. So he's going to be our first guest on today's show. And then later on, we're going to be talking to Melanie Patterson. She is the founding and managing director of Team Integrity Knowledge Center. And she's going to be talking about the government contracting side of trucking, which I think is super interesting. And then later in the show, we are going to round it out with the logistics of lipstick and how it's an economic indicator of how the economy is performing. So really fascinating sort of deep dive. And we'll get into that later on in the show. But first, the Moonair Group is a leading recruiting firm specializing in the logistics and technology fields. Whether you're looking for a new job in the industry, or you're looking to hire top tier talent, the Moonair Group is has the network strength to meet your needs. Learn more at moonairgroup.com. And like I said, the CEO, Wasim, is going to be joining us here in a few minutes. But that first topic that I want to dive into is how the top brokers in the US are treating digital marketing. Now, last week's list was the top carriers. And so we looked at, you know, sort of the, the top 500 lists. Now with this list the top 3 PLs it's a little bit more challenging to find that information because while yes there are plenty of of top you know 100 lists that are available carriers are classified by how much equipment that they own and how much equipment that they're running. Meanwhile, 3PLs are really classified by revenue. And then there's no real list that I found, you know, if if somebody out there knows of a list that I may have, you know, not found in my Google searches. um, But the 3PL list, you have to, there is no indication of whether they're asset based or non-asset based, whether they're only solely based in the US, or do they have worldwide operations? Are they a freight forwarder or freight broker, which is also a Little bit different um, between those two demographics. So, top three PLs, you know, we're kind of working with uh, a limited source of re, or I guess a limited amount of resources for these top 10 lists. But I found a pretty good one. So, knowing all of that, here is the top three PLs list from Armstrong and Associates back in 2020 that listed the top three PLs based on revenue. We got a link to that study in or those results in the show notes in case you want to check out more of it. But this list is from 2020. And so some of the people that you will see on this list, like XBO and J.B. Hunt, we covered them in last week's show on the carrier side of things. So typically on the carrier side of things, especially for these larger companies, they have one main website, which is more geared towards uh, shippers, it's more geared towards investors and just general awareness of the company. Meanwhile, the carrier part of their website is really where we get like sort of the the juicy insight of how they're attracting employees, specifically drivers. Um, So that's what's valuable on this list. But some of the best ideas from this list, the Armstrong and Associates list came from really like the middle of the pack. It's 53 PLs. And so you're going to kind of see a lot of the same things, especially towards the top of that list, where a lot of folks are using their website presence as a general overview of their company. But we still found a lot of really interesting insights. But with all of that said, I am still one person doing this research in addition to managing a full-time job. So if I miss something, I'm sorry, be nice, but you can also submit good marketing examples to me. Just find my contact information, shoot me a DM over you know, on any of the various social media platforms. You can find all of those linked in uh, everythingislogistics.com is really where you can find a lot of those things. So send me those good marketing examples that you see in free and we'll highlight them on the show. So with all of that said what you should be using from this information I'm about to give you is sort of use it as inspirational. Not all of these tactics are going to be right for your business. It's not going to be right from a budget standpoint or just a a time capacity standpoint. But you can use it as inspiration. You can use it, use it as building blocks to add on to your digital media presence, your website presence, and connecting all of those dots. So you can, at the end of the day, recruit better employees and also get better customers. So knowing all of that, use this list as you know some inspiration that you can take into your marketing planning now or in the future. So first few key takeaways. If you have as a 3PL your website if you have the the ability from a technology standpoint to give instant quotes that was one thing that really stood out especially among the top the top companies listed on there is to have the instant quoting ability because for a lot of 3PLs having someone submit a quote on your website is like the holy grail of metrics of proving the success of your company it's it's really the most important thing that you want a visitor to do and so what i saw as as far as like a commonality among a lot of these different companies is that they put that information in the hero section of the website. And the hero section of the website is that first frame that you see when you go to the desktop version of a website or a mobile version too. It's that that first section. What does that look like? Is it an image? Is it a video? What does that text say? What is that CTA button that you have in that section before the user scrolls? That is called your hero section. And so for a lot of these examples, I'm going to bring one up first. It's Kuna Nagal is how you pronounce this company name. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it wrong. I'm probably not. Looked for like six different YouTube videos to hear someone pronounce the company name so I could try to get it right. So I think that's how you pronounce it. But if you're looking at the screen, you can see in their hero section before you scroll, they have a tab that says, how can we help you today? And in the search bar, you can list out all of the different ways. So you, do you want uh, to submit a request for quote? Do you want to find tracking info? Do you want to search for a blog article? Do you want to search for their social media or their contact information? You can search for it in that search bar. So that as they are giving you the ability that if, maybe if you're not there to submit a quote, because to be honest, it's kind of rare that folks do arrive on your site and complete a form in order to submit a quote. You have to make that aware on other platforms of why that user should submit a quote on your website in order to really reap the benefits of that. So I really love how they took that field and they made it into a a place where you can just search for whatever you want. Because if you're searching for whatever you want in that little frame, in that little box, it helps the user get to where they want to go much quicker than trying to navigate and trying to find where that information is on the website. It also, from a marketing perspective, gives you a ton of content ideas. Say someone is coming to your website and they're searching for, I don't know, uh, rules and regulations for uh, shipping goods from the US to another country you could have that information on your site and maybe the the person doesn't know where to find it. So they input that information into the search bar to try to find it. Or if the person is searching for that information and it's not already on your site that gives you the perfect indication of how you should be adjusting your content plan because you should be adding that to your content plan if the user is searching for it and it fits within your business model and and your revenue targets and whatever sort of messaging goals that you have then that also helps search bars in a website is relatively easy to add into the functionality of your site and it gives you so much more valuable insight like for for my website digital dispatch i get a weekly report every single single week of how folks arrived on the site. And then what did they search for when they arrived on the site? And that gives me ideas of where I'm having gaps in my content and where I need to make more content in the future about those specific topics. So I thought that that was a really good example. Another really good example of instant quoting ability comes from Coyote Logistics. So this form if you're seeing it on the site it really is from a functional coding level it's a pretty basic form now it's in the hero section again and you can pick between truckload less than truckload intermodal air or ocean you fill out a couple things and then you move on to the next page now the next page has more of a lengthy form of of what you need to fill out based on the the you know the qualifications that you entered into the first you know, sort of box that you saw there on the hero section. Are you shipping LTL? Are you shipping uh, truckload? So you're filling out that short information quickly and then you're moving on to the next page where it's more detailed information that they're requesting from you. Now, I did do a little bit of a test run. So sorry to Coyote if you got a spam email that got submitted from this. Now, what I thought was really great is that they, with a lot of tools, especially. If you don't have the technology to add an instant quoting ability, which instant quoting ability into your website is kind of tough and it is kind of expensive right now. But for Coyote they're able to get this information. And then once you submit that information to their company, you're getting an email back immediately that says, thank you for reaching out. Somebody a quote here. Our, our team is working on, you know, fixing up a quote for you and we'll be in contact soon. And then they list out a bunch of different resources that you can read while you're waiting for that person to get back to you from the company. So I thought that that was a really good way of, of trying to introduce, you know, some kind of a, a buyer flow where it still keeps the the potential business partner in the loop and and aware that you're on it and that you'll be in contact immediately but I th- that's a very simple workflow that any 3PL in the country could implement today. It might take a few hours you know, to get the verbiage right and get you know, some email marketing software set up. But if you already have a lot of those capabilities, email marketing being one of them already set up, and if you have a website that's already set up, this could take you a couple hours in order to implement the same thing that Coyote did. And you could probably do it for a lot cheaper than, than what they have. Another option that I want to show you is TQL. Because this form, TQL is one of the largest companies in the entire world. But this form on their website to request a quote can be replicated by seriously any 3PL in the industry. Now, I didn't test this form, so I don't know what the follow-up looks like. But if you just keep in mind that you know, once somebody submits a quote, they kind of want that answer very, very quickly. So my one piece of advice is that if you are going to take a more uh, simpler approach to putting contact to putting quoting forms on your website, then you need to make sure that you have that follow up process in place where a salesperson is on it immediately. Those are hot leads, you want to make sure that someone is researching that immediately. When I say immediately, I mean within 30 minutes, because anytime if it's outside of 30 minutes, then you're really sort of rolling the dice because that person on the other end wants an answer as soon as possible. And if you're not going to provide it to them, then somebody else will. So just keep that in mind to have that sort of process set up from the jump. The next key takeaway from looking at all of these different 3PL websites is putting your content front and center. Now, not all 3PLs are going to be creating content on a regular basis. But if you are, don't hide the content put it front and center, make it easy. And a great example of this is the Expediter's podcast. This is one of the best podcast landing pages I've ever seen because it treats podcast episodes as blog posts. I, I do this on my own site and I see tr- a tremendous return as far as Evergreen listens to content that is more than a year old, a lot of these episodes. And so the Expediter's podcast, they're, they're doing the same strategy. And I'd be willing to bet that they're seeing a lot of success with that as well. And they put the content right in front of your face they they make it they if you're proud of your content you should be putting in front of your customers face as much as possible and the expediters podcast does a great job of that And then you can also use that podcast landing page to link to other relevant articles within your site. Anybody who knows SEO and knows a good website viewing experience also includes linking to other relevant parts of your website through an article or a podcast article that is getting a good amount of listens. So say you have five episodes that are performing really, really well, add them to your website add those show notes to your website. Make it dumb easy for anybody who's coming to your your company website in order to check that out and to see the media that you are creating. Because even if they're not ready to convert, right that second and submit an RFQ right on your website. They're more willing to follow your social media accounts and your podcast if you put it in front of their face and make it easy for them to find it. Now, we mentioned last week on how your website can really help in lessening the amount of phone calls that your team receives. And that is sort of the goal, I think, with any website, no matter if you're a carrier or through PL Freight Tech, put all the information that users are seeking put it on your website. Don't gatekeep it. Don't require you know, someone to, to fill out a, you know book a meeting in order to get more in, into, I guess, the nitty gritty of what the services and the solutions that you provide. You want to make sure that you're putting that information front and center in order to reduce those phone calls. Because guess what? If you reduce phone calls to your team, especially if they're unnecessary phone calls, then you give them more time to do the things that have a greater impact on your bottom line. So this next example that I want to show is Burris Logistics. First Logistics has an enormous page of downloadable resources. But what I particularly like the most is that they have sales kits, brochures that they already have, you know, created and designed, which... Predominantly, a lot of, of companies out here have that access to that information and they already have created that information. So, what you want to do is you want to make sure that you have that content in a downloadable PDF that people can just download right off the website. It's not just for users, it's for your sales team too. Say they have a conference coming up, they're going to it the next day. Do you, as the marketer, want to really step back and be able to, to jump in and design a new presentation every single time? No. design one and done, upload it to the website. And then you're giving not only your customers that resource, but you're giving it as a sales resource as well, especially if you have locations all over. So a few takeaway tips, use your website to reduce those phone calls. When you are answering the questions with your content, it's better to put your face on camera. I know a lot of people are scared to do that, but put your face on camera and answer some of those questions that will establish trust and credibility much more so than just, you know, I don't want to say like a talking head or like an illustrated video or, or one of those kinds. Answer a simple quick, quick, quick question, two to five minutes, and you already have your face on camera. So that develops authentic authenticity and trust with the users who are visiting your site. And then the last tip, make your website a one stop shop but don't expect it to be like this magical lead fairy. Just because you add an RFQ or sales brochures to your website, doesn't mean that people are automatically going to show up to your site unless you give them reason to. So that's where you're setting up your sales process on your site first. And then when you go to social media, you go to email, you go to all these other different channels, then that's where you can start to really spread the message about your brand, who you are, what you do, and all of that good information in order to 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 make sure that you know you're you're giving people value first you're giving them a reason to come to your website first and then when they get to the website then that's where it really it If you created the right experience, you're creating a no-brainer solution for them to reach out to you to request a quote, to download a sales brochure, or to follow you on social media, follow your content, all that good stuff. So those are the biggest takeaways from looking at the digital marketing tactics from some of the really the the biggest 3PLs in the US since 2020, that is. Now let's segue into our first guest. Let's go ahead and bring in Wasim Munanir. And Waseem, welcome into the show. Now you are a fellow North Florida resident, so um, we got Jaguars football season coming up. We have uh, hopefully some higher hopes than the previous season. But for maybe for folks who who don't know about you and your business, can you give us a little bit of breakdown on on who Waseem is and the Moon and Air Group?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Blythe, for having me. I really appreciate it. It's a long time coming. Uh, thanks, Great Waves, also for having us on here as a sponsor. It's Super exciting for us. It's also a first for us, um, and uh, hopefully we can add some value for you. So, uh, me on my background, I'm born and raised in New Jersey. Uh, moved down here to Northeast Florida about six uh, years ago, thanks to my then girlfriend, now beautiful wife, and uh, we are in Punta Vedra Beach, right out right outside of Jacksonville. Um, been in business for about six years, uh, running the Boudreaux Group. Uh, so that's a little bit about my background.
0: So how did you pick, so for your recruiting firm, how did you pick logistics and technology? How did you, I guess, so did you always have an interest in logistics?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, so good segue from, from my background. So I started out recruiting, working for some of the largest agencies in New York when I was still uh, living in New Jersey. And so I cut my teeth there uh, and they were strictly technology search firms So I really started on the technology side, and the only reason I got into logistics was, like a lot of the folks in logistics, uh, wasn't really deliberate, to be honest with you. I was recruited by uh, one of the larger 3PLs to be an internal recruiter, uh, which was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it gave me an opportunity to really learn um, a lot about logistics and just being able to interview people in multiple um, areas of logistics, from freight forwarding to domestic transportation to terminal operations, maritime side, uh, contract logistics. I was able to interview people in all of those areas working for that company for about two and a half years. And that gave me a really good crash course into the logistics world. Um, and that, that was when I had the opportunity to also work as an internal recruiter with a lot of search firms to realize that there was an opportunity there for sure, for me to go out there and do my thing using the headhunting skills that I learned working for uh, other search firms and, and couple that with the, uh, the logistics knowledge that I learned over the last couple of years. And I realized that there was definitely a gap in terms of uh, being able to bridge logistics and technology. And it was also great timing because, as you know, um, over the last five, six, seven years, there's money flooding into the freight tech space. And there's a demand for folks who really understand both the nuts and bolts in logistics, but also are very tech forward in their thinking. And they're really looking to move the industry forward from a technology standpoint.
0: That's a great breakdown because I I just assumed I don't even know what I really assume when it comes to recruiting because the 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 level of experience that I have is sort of you know working at a three pl working at the front desk and you know recruiters would come in to you know sort of cold call and not really cold call but cold visit and they would try to get us to use their services but I imagine that that process isn't really effective anymore. This might sound like a dumb question, but how does the recruiting process in the modern day environment, how does that look? Does it is How does it look for employees? How does it look for companies? Sort of break that down for us.
1: Sure. Absolutely. So, I mean, just to touch on the way we approach our clients, the way that we've been doing it for a long time, to be honest with you, I haven't made a cold call in, in a lot of years, thankfully, just because the way that we really approach the business is just kind of relationship building. And so I've, I've kind of become a, a master networker. Um, within my own space. It's fun for me. It's passionate for me. It doesn't really feel like work. And that's really the way that we develop our... That's really our business development strategies is building relationships outside of work um, that turn into into clients. So really haven't made a cold call in a long time. Um, In terms of the experience on the the client side, I'll start there. Um, Working with us at least, and, and I think a lot of search firms that are really highly specialized in a certain industry... Uh, We're we're pretty focused and targeted. So uh, clients will essentially bring to us a a very precise need in terms of talent, typically senior individual contributors up to the C-suite. And we'll really spend our time getting to know those clients over time, uh, not just on one position, but for many positions over a period of time. And to really understand that client, where's their business today? Where does their business want to go? Uh, And what are the the puzzle pieces that are currently missing that need to be put in place in order for that business to get there? And so it's our job to really understand what those puzzle pieces are and then work with them to put together a strategy to go out and find those folks, uh, understand their needs, uh, find that there's a match between the candidate's needs and where that company is trying to go and help align those two things. And then we work with our client to introduce the organization, not just as a job description, but really dive deeper beyond that. Right. What are... What are they getting into? What is their product? Why is it exciting? What are they looking to change within their own industry? And hopefully find that those things align with what the candidate's looking to do with their career. And so that's kind of our approach on the client side.
0: I like that you mentioned it's it's almost like a puzzle piece that that you're putting together for for both on the employee side and then also on on the client side. So I with the last couple of years, I think it goes without saying that maybe those puzzle pieces have been just thrown all around and how you'd find you know a good fit for each candidate. What are sort of the trends that you've noticed over the last couple of years? You know, hybrid work models is is one that comes to mind. Um, Are there any of those trends that evolved since COVID? And we're still, you know, pretty much in it. Um, I don't know that it's ever going away. But how? what are those trends that evolved from the initial, you know, sort of COVID and lockdowns that are now here to stay?
1: Sure. Yeah. So we definitely saw um, kind of an evolution, a story from very early on where everybody was kind of in shock. They realized they still need to hire people, but we don't know what's going to happen kind of that first month or two. And then, you know, very clearly realized that our industry, thank God, was one of the industries that um, was kind of a silver lining, right? Because folks uh, were already buying goods online. And I think they said it went from like 17% to 27% of online purchases versus brick and mortar, which was supposed to happen over the next 10 years, but happened over two years, which the, the outcome of that was very clear within our industry uh, in terms of how much we were importing into the United States as a, as a consumer. And so that, you know, thankfully, again, the silver lining affected the demand for, for hiring. And so um, we saw companies, some of them went, most of them in the beginning went work from home 100 percent, safety is a priority. We need to take care of our people. And then we started to see kind of a phasing out. And, and we ended up, I think, with a, a few different buckets. Um, a smaller group, maybe 20% that are 100% back in the office, hands-on, maybe 20% that are, if you want to work from home permanently, work from home permanently. And then that kind of in-between ground where I think the majority of our clients sit are um, in the hybrid, right? Some are coming a couple of days a week, come in four days a week, one day from home. Uh, there's, there's definitely been a variety, and I think the changing in that area has settled. So I think most of our clients, whatever their policy is today, they've decided, is their policy moving forward, barring any, any extreme changes?
0: So what about the I guess the, the current market? You know, everybody's scared to death that we're, you know, going into an economic downturn and and that, you know, all of the purchasing power and sort of, I guess, job stability is is kind of up in the air. Are you seeing that as far as you know supply chain is is concerned, or is demand sort of higher than ever as far as getting good people into these positions?
1: Sure. So from the from the client side, uh, it very much depends who their customers are. Right. So if you're if you're moving freight for a sector uh, that is a luxury, that isn't necessarily a priority for people to be spending money on, uh, maybe you'll see a little bit of an impact. Uh, most folks are, are moving freight. There are necessities. Um, and so for for those folks, it's still booming. Right. People are still consuming. Um, you know, there, I think there's there's an excess of money still in the economy that's available for people to spend and they're still spending that money. Folks have developed habits of being able to, um, you know, easily consume things by pushing a couple buttons on their phone. It used to be just the younger group. And during COVID, the older older groups, grandma and grandpa, were kind of forced to learn how to do that. And and now they're spoiled with it. So we're still seeing consumers purchase. And as a result, the supply chain is still moving um, at pretty high volumes. And the demand for talent as a result of that is still pretty high. So I think ultimately, it depends who are the customers of our clients. And, and for now, what we've seen is that the hiring is still equal to or even greater uh, than what it was maybe six months ago or 12 months ago.
0: Oh, wow, so it's a good time to be working in the supply chain industry. People always need their stuff moved and, and, and shipped. Now, um, for as far as our pre-show like sort of research and, and conversations, you, you mentioned something that I thought was really interesting, and it's passive candidates. Can you break down Kay. what a passive candidate is? I, I kind of have an idea, but I would, I would like for you to break it down and, and how that applies to your business.
1: Sure. So at, at, the, most, at the most basic level, uh, there's ultimately passive candidates and there are active candidates. Active candidates are exactly what it sounds like. Folks that are actively seeking out a new job uh, doesn't necessarily mean they're unemployed. They could, be in, they could be employed currently and still actively looking for something. Uh, Passive candidates are just the opposite, which is probably, I would say, 95% of the candidates that we place are passive candidates. They're pretty excited about where they are. They're relatively happy where they are in their current job and their current company. They're they're doing quite well. Uh, But for some reason, something that we brought to the table, uh, to their attention, is really intriguing. And for each person, that might be different. It might be about compensation. It might be about leadership. It might be about culture. It might be about benefits. Work from home policy has climbed to the top of that list. Um, so for everybody, it's different, but typically a passive carry is somebody who their ears are kind of open if you bring something exciting to their attention. But for the most part, they're they're passively keeping their eyes open. Hmm.
0: I like that. That's interesting because you, you, I would imagine that I've always heard the phrase that it's inter, or, or it's more beneficial to look for a job while you have a job instead of the other way around mm-hmm. when you actually really need a job. Because I feel like you know maybe most people would just settle for a job that they don't like, but if maybe. As a passive candidate, that could be a solution to find really that dream position that you've wanted for, you know you maybe your entire life.
1: sure. and, that, and that's, there's definitely truth to that, right? And I think it also makes it more challenging for us to service our customers with passive candidates. The reality is we're getting paid to go find the top top candidates that are out there. Our clients don't need to pay us to find folks that are are looking for work most of the time. Um, and so the folks that are the top candidates are also typically the folks that are being held onto the most tightly by their current employers. So we really have to dig deep into what their needs are, what they get excited about, where they want to go with their career, and then align that hopefully with where our clients are going long term.
0: That's really insightful. So okay, well, it seems so. If I'm an employee, employee, or maybe I'm an employer and I'm looking to hire a recruiting firm like yours what should I do now in order to get myself ready to work with somebody like you?
1: Sure. So I mean, working, working with us in terms of beginning a relationship with our firm is... Um, I don't want to say it's easy. There's definitely work on, on both parts, uh, both on our part and on the part of our prospective client. Most of the work is on our end, right? We really need to get to understand uh, what your culture is, what your business goals are, where you want to bring your company... Specifically within your organization, that department that you're hiring for, where is it today and where do you want it to go in the areas of culture, climate, KPIs, metrics, however you define success, we really need to understand those things. And so the the best relationships that we have are with clients that are kind of an open book and, and see us as a partner and we see them as a partner and we learn as much as possible about their business uh, and that allows us to then go out and we be very, very specific and very targeted and finding talent for them.
0: That's awesome. I mean, I, it, it's good to hear that the supply chain industry is is not one that's you know being negatively affected by the au- economic downturn. I don't know if that's going to change in the future, but right now we're, we're we're looking pretty good. So, so Wasim, thank you for sharing that insight. Where can folks follow more of your work, learn more about your company, all of that good stuff?
1: Yeah. Um, so definitely reach out to me. Ah, uh, you can visit us at MunairGroup.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, on Facebook. Reach out to me directly at Wasim at MunairGroup.com, uh, and we'll be happy to to get to know you. Whether you're on the client side or on the candidate side, we love building our network and building relationships. It's uh, it's definitely the blood flow, blood uh, blood flow of our business.
0: Awesome, thank you so much. We're going to have you back here in in a few weeks. so we'll we'll dive more into a little bit um of this discussion, which I, I think is fascinating, watching how you know people flow through work and where they choose to to work and why not and and why they choose to make the decision that they do. So thank you again for joining.
1: thanks, appreciate it. <laughs> thank
0: thank you, you so much. we'll We'll see you soon. All right. Well, that's also a really good time to mention Wasim's company. Want to boost your bottom line? Start with hiring the right talent. The Moonair Group is a leading recruiting firm that specializes in identifying the top logistics and technology talent. Take the first step towards growing your business by visiting MoonairGroup.com. We also have all of those listed in the show notes. So you can connect with Wasim on LinkedIn. You can also follow their company and connect with them all linked in the show notes. We made it easy for you. All right, let's bring on our next guest. She's Melanie Patterson, founder and managing director of Team Integrity Knowledge Center. Welcome back, Melanie, for the second time on the Cyberly Show. Absolutely. Thank
2: you so much for having me for a second time. This is amazing. Good to see you again.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you're one of my favorite people because you just elude just positivity and happiness and just all of the cool stuff that you have going on in your life. And the last time we were on the show or last time you were on the show, I listed out almost like a a CVS receipt long of your resume and all of the things you've accomplished. You're a nurse, you're you're a business owner, you know, like four or five times owner. Um, So for folks who don't know, can you break down, you know, sort of your career history and who Melanie is as a person?
2: Sure. Absolutely. So born and raised here in Chicago, I uh, started out with business administration as my first uh, undergraduate degree, but God had other plans. And so I shifted over into medicine and I obtained a master's degree and I practiced as a practitioner for about seven years in ER trauma. And uh, I was dealing with burnout. I was dealing with burnout. I I was working at the bedside, but simultaneously always had my hands into entrepreneurship. And I said, you know what? What would it really look like to jump into entrepreneurship full time? And so I pivoted and navigated into uh, freight logistics and transportation. And here we are.
0: That's awesome. So, so one of your, your, I think the biggest success stories of uh, for you is is your Team Integrity Knowledge Center. It's basically a a knowledge based platform for the trucking industry. And 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 what I love about you is that you're, you're knowledge first. You put that information out into the world first without really expecting you know anything in return. And I, I think a lot of businesses and leaders are scared to share that knowledge, but you're really forthcoming about what you've learned in this industry. When did you decide that you and and Team Integrity were going to be a knowledge first solution?
2: Yeah, yeah. So let's backtrack just a little bit. So with Integrity Transit Co, uh, we're an asset based carrier here in the Midwest. I said there's no way that I can uh, leave medicine, enter into entrepreneurship procure these units and run them off of the load board essentially. So I got mentorship and I started to do the research. With that, I was introduced to government contracting. So Integrity Transit Co. is a certified minority woman-owned transportation company, and the government is one of our customers. Not only that, they've really been pivotal in us sustaining in this current volatile market right now. Mm -hmm. And so I said, there's no way that I can achieve this level of success and not reach back to my community. And so I started to document my processes on how that I achieved these, these accomplishments within government contracting. And that was the beginning, the inception of Team Integrity Knowledge Center. And I wanted to lead with education first, because that's pivotal in government contracting. We need to lay down the foundation and understand what this looks like specific to freight logistics and as, as it's a very niche-specific uh, category within the paradigm of government contracting.
0: And, and that and, was one uh, thing uh, from, from... Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Uh, Well, I was going to say, that's one thing that I didn't really know. I I, I knew about government contracting, but I didn't know that it applied to freight and logistics in the the trucking industry. I'm assuming that maybe other people don't know that as well. So can you kind of give us an overview of what government contracting looks like in freight?
2: Yeah. So once again, government contracting is is a paradigm. They purchase anything from office supplies. Uh, to tra- hauling transportation services right and so it's very niche specific within freight logistics and so what does that look like right so we have different department agencies that purchases transportation hauling courier warehousing logistics, dispatching services, brokerage services within uh, the global supply chain. And so we have some uh, government agencies such as like the Department of Defense, Department of Agriculture, which are one of our top customers. And they are basically the world's top purchaser. So how can we not combine global supply chain and that whole ecosystem with the world's largest purchaser. And so here we have freight logistics within government contracting.
0: Now, th- this might sound like a dumb question, but how is, is I guess, contracting with the government, it, how is that different than just, reg- I, I quote unquote, regular freight shipments? Is there any difference or is just the government just, you know, a really big customer?
2: um yeah it is quite different um just to what you alluded to it's the government, and so they are the world's largest customer they have um a funding available to them than more than just a private entity, Um, and then the process and procedure of answering RFPs are similar but very different within the government contracting realm. Um, And so the government provides you with a great deal of stability. So let's talk about government contracting. So on average, the government spends about $500 billion um, in procuring of products and services. In uh, 2021, due to COVID-19, they spent almost $7 trillion, right? So this is very different from a private entity who's offering uh, contracted work. And so, yeah, that's going to look really, really different for you as a carrier uh, doing business with the government.
0: But I I guess you almost have to make sure that you are, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's in order to do business with the government. But it sounds like it's very lucrative and a a missed opportunity maybe for a lot of companies out there. What should I guess uh, uh, maybe is it newer companies that are hitting the market? Is it smaller carriers? Who is doing the most business with the government, if you know?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, of course, a large uh, component of our mega carriers are the ones who's um, absorbing these larger 20 million dollar contracts. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I don't want that to deter any of our our smaller uh, fleet owners such as myself. Right. And according to the government, when we say small business, that's 30 million or less, 250 employees or less. And so for me, that's not that small. Right. Right. And so, yeah. Right. Um, And 23 percent of of federal funding is mandated to be spent with small business owners. And so, yeah, a lot of these larger mega carriers are getting these grand uh, contracts. But I ask of you, what's wrong with the low hanging fruit on the state and local level as well? Also, another thing that we need to entertain is subcontracting opportunities. We don't always have to lead as a prime within government contract. subcontracting is also a very rewarding opportunity. Um, and then such as myself, let me speak from a place of, of, a, of example. I am a small business owner. Um, but the last contract that we were just awarded on the state level was a seven figure contract, 2.5 million to be exact. Wow. Um, and so that's not that small. If you're looking at it from a, uh, solopreneur, a small business owner perspective, that's really going to give you a great foundation to build off of in a very, very temperature sensitive market right now. As we know, there's a ton of talk of us possibly entering into a recession. If not, we are already in one. And so the government provides you with that stability as a small business owner. Um, Once again, as I just uh, spoke to Um, During the pandemic, they spent historical numbers and um, small business owners were able to benefit from that. The government doesn't really suffer from a pandemic, a recession or bankruptcy um, for that matter.
0: That's fascinating. I, I wouldn't have even thought that, you know, the, the idea that a small business is, is making, you know, a, less than 100 employees or whatever the number that you just said, less than 30 million in revenue, that's considered a small business to the government is fascinating. So if I'm if I'm a fleet owner, and I want to get started with, with learning how to do government contracting, connecting it back to, to team integrity, what kind of information are, are you giving to folks to, to, I guess, close that educational gap if they want to do business with the government?
2: Yeah, that's exactly what it is. There is an educational gap. And so being that I do have a little bit of of scholarly background behind me, I did do some market research to determine what is that gap? And so with that, we developed Trucking Meets GovCon mentorship. Entering into uh, government contracting is not going to be easy, but it will be rewarding. The return on investment is there, right? We just need to set the foundation and really do some hand-holding. So with this mentorship, once again, we do real hand-holding. We understand what your company's niche is, what are the services that you offer. We kind of go into the back office of your company so we can start start to establish um, the structure and the infrastructure of your business to get ready to do business with the government. Uh, We we teach you what is an RFP, what is an RFQ, what is an RFI, what is a sole source, how to leverage your set-asides and certification opportunities, Um, the different sectors, right? So we have the federal level, the state level, the local level, and uh, the the city level, right? Um, And so we kind of walk you through that process along with just a ton of tools and resources, um, SAM.gov registration, customized award-winning capability statement, which, um, Blight is our lead magnet. It's our marketing mm-hmm. tool um, within the government realm. Um, that's how we kind of Uh, market ourselves to the government and let them know, you know, what our core competencies are, what our differentiators are, Um, uh, also give a glimpse into what our past performance is. And so we kind of groom them and mold them to get ready to um, get awarded these large six and seven figure contracts as a small business owner.
0: I love that. I think more more small businesses should be made aware of, of of all of the opportunities that exist with working with the government, not working for them technically, but working with them in order to really, they're, they're an endless supply of customers if you if you do it right, especially from the government standpoint. All right, Melanie, where can folks follow more of your work? You have a great social media presence. So let folks know where, where they can get more information on team integrity, your profiles, all that good stuff.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So for me, um, as an individual, Melanie, pa- Melanie Patterson on uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, and then Team Integrity Knowledge Center on all social media platforms as well. So that's your Facebook, your Instagram, your LinkedIn. And then if you want to contact us directly, www.teamintegrityknowledgecenter.com. And then we do have a um, contact line of 312 seven, six, seven, four, eight, four, eight. And so we will be more than willing to kind of get a a good assessment on where you're at in business and kind of take it from there.
0: That's awesome. Thank you so much, Melanie, for, for shining a light on this, you know, really great opportunity, I think for a lot of small carriers out there. So appreciate your time and your insights all about able stuff. Go follow her on social media. Y'all. Thank you so much, Blythe. Good to see you again. Absolutely. Hope to see you soon. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you. Okay, well that, I mean, really two two great guests back to back sharing you know parts of the market that I think a lot of folks in, in logistics don't really consider. And that's the government contracting side of things. And then also the recruiting side of things. So really great guests. Let's jump into our last topic because we got a little bit about 10 minutes left in the show. And I want to make sure I hit this because it's a fun topic, the logistics of lipstick. Now... I know that that might, you know, sort of, you know, even saying that title might turn a lot of people off, but trust me, I'm going to get there because it's really sort of fascinating. Because the lipstick, in general, lipstick purchases ha- have a really strong economic indicator of of what's going on in the market, and, and we'll get to that in just a second. But first, let's back it up because lipstick has been around for centuries, dating back to the earliest record of Mesopotamia. I mean, you it, there are also um, records of lipstick being used. In case you're wondering of you know how I guess lipstick plays a role in our society. Well, it's played a role for for thousands of years, dating back to Mesopotamia. Also Cleopatra, the, the pharaoh, I think she was a pharaoh from Egypt. I don't know. She was technically a pharaoh from Egypt. And she famously wore red lipstick. In fact, where they think that she is uh, buried or where her tomb is, uh, they found a lot of different old makeup tools. So That sort of, you know, red lipstick was really coined by Cleopatra back in the Egyptian days. And she made that red lipstick by using crushed carmine beetles. And speaking of which, I sort of, you might have seen this video making the rounds and going viral over the last couple of weeks. It really was a a man sort of just, taking cactus leaves i guess is that's technically what you could call it cacti leaves and hanging them up on a piece of string and then collecting the dead bugs that are on the leaf itself if you're watching the screen you can kind of get a glimpse of what this looks like but it's it's sort of a wild statement because it's exactly how red lipstick is made if you're if you're listening and not watching i'm going to read the description from the account called science girl she said that these little bugs are called a scale insect and it's a type of uh, immobile parasite living on moisture and the nutrients of cacti. It almost looks like mold that's growing on the cactus leaf itself. Now from this insect, a natural dye is derived called carmine. And quoting the science girl here, she said, the insect produces carminic acid that deters its predation by other insects. Although ironically, the thing that saves it from predators is the main ingredient for carmine, dye. Now this dye is used commonly in you know different foods. It also lipsticks. So if you are, depending on how strict of a vegan that you are, you might want to know that the red lipstick that you're wearing has is made from, you know, carmine dye, of how it is used to make lipsticks and then also red dyes in food. So after it's manufactured, you just sort of watch that process sort of take place where they take the beetles and they smash them. And then this red dye comes up, they make sort of a powder from it. And so then they take that powder and they mix it with a waxy compound. And so they mix that all together, sort of boil it all together. And then they pour that liquid into different sort of lipstick-shaped tubes. And so that's how lipstick is made. Now, after lipstick has been made, next comes sort of the manufacturing, or not really the manufacturing because we just talked about that, but the next step is the logistics uh, side of the world. Because since COVID, lipstick has seen a lot of ups and downs. And to give you some fun facts, a side effect of those initial lockdowns and mass mandates saw lipstick sales dip to 15% and prices declined by 28% think about it, we're all working from home, we're going out less, um, we're wearing masks when we do go out. So lipstick becomes really, it used to be a staple in our wardrobe, especially for women, you know, outfit wise, whatever you're pairing that lipstick with whatever you're wearing. So people aren't seeing your mouth, you're probably not going to focus too much on lipstick. And then to put that number in perspective, when sales dipped 15% and prices declined by 28%, in that previous year, in 2019, the beauty industry saw $500 billion in sales. So that 15% dip is quite a lot of money. Now, there's also a change in how stores... We know with the rise of e-commerce, it's been trending that way for a while. But with the rise in e-commerce, there's also a change in how stores keep and store that actual inventory. So smaller brands that start their own makeup line, which you might see this more so on the local level, when you start up that makeup line, you have to be conscious of the entire customer journey from the website in order to that product arriving in the person's hand, how they pay pick it up in a store, all of that matters. So there's an indie beauty creator. um, She's called Beautify Believers Founder. Uh, Rachel Whitaker said that lipstick brands have to know these little things like how their packaging will reflect fingerprints if it's a matte design. So if your lipstick is going into retail, how is it going to sit on that shelf? If the packaging is a matte design, are people are going to be picking it up? They're going to be putting fingerprints on it. That's going to negatively infect or affect how that person or how future people after that person picked up the package sees and interacts with the brand. So you have to keep that in mind. And then there was another thing that she she said to keep in mind as well is having smaller shipments sent to retailers distribution center instead of retail stores. I thought that this, part was kind of fascinating where retail stores now, they have to monetize Every inch of that space in order to make money. So they don't really have the back rooms anymore, where you can go in the back and see if there's anything else available, or if there's you know more just stored in the back that doesn't exist anymore. So that same um, that same beauty founder uh, Rachel, she said that retailers do not have huge storage facilities. Instead, they have distribution centers where everything goes in and goes straight back out again. There is no back room because each inch of the retail space has to earn. Money and so lipstick brands need to be prepared to ship in smaller quantities, far more regularly, and then manage the costs around that. As a sort of a, I guess, a beauty influencer or a beauty beauty founder, she helps other founders sort of start their own, uh, you know, makeup empire, start their own lipstick empire, and keep the nuances of how that customer arrives to your website and then ultimately has the product in their hands and that entire process where a lot of folks aren't managing the logistics side of things. So maybe they get that product in their hands and they buy it and then they turns out they don't like it. A lot of folks, a lot of the, the founders are not factoring in the logistics costs of storing your goods, of shipping those goods, the return shipments of those, and then all of the, the increased costs because these retail locations are keeping smaller stocks on hand. So you have to pay for not only the shipping to the distribution side, but also the distribution from the distribution center to actually the retail store and manage the costs all around that. So keeping that in mind, if you say you, you have a lipstick color that you absolutely adore and you want it to hit those shelves. Now, there's also a somewhat controversial side that has the economic tie-in called the lipstick index or the lipstick effect, which is I just found this out today. And it's the theory that when consumers are facing an economic crisis, they are more willing to buy less costly luxury goods. So instead of people buying fur coats, they will instead buy a luxury lipstick. So if you think about it, you're coming out of the bathroom, um, you're in a restaurant or something and you go to put lipstick on, that is fashion and... And makeup are seen as communication devices to other people. Maybe they're not seen as that, but they are, they're, they're, yeah, they're technically seen by other people as communication devices. So if you whip out a luxury, you know, lipstick brand, then that signals to other people that you have wealth and all of these, you know, good things. Um, So this is, this was another part of the theory because that theory of whether or not that, that the theory is that that when consumers are facing an economic crisis they're more willing to buy those less co- those less cost luxury goods but that's kind of anecdotal and it's kind of controversial In that respect, because in a recent study by university researchers, the effect is attributed to evolutionary psychology. This lipstick effect is driven by a woman's desire to attract males with resources and depends on their perceived mate attraction function served by these products. So in addition to showing how and why economic recessions influence women's desire for beauty products this research also provided novel insights into women's mating psychology consumer behavior and the relationship between the two it said although the lipstick effect had garnered some anecdotal lore the present research suggests that women's spending on beauty products may be the third indicator of economic recessions an indicator that may be rooted in our ancestral psychology which is fascinating, all in the same jump. So we're talking about a product that's been around for thousands of years. It's made from bugs. And then now it's an economic indicator. So you're, you're probably knowing all of that. You're probably wondering, well, how are lipstick sales doing? Because if lipstick sales have increased, then we might be in some trouble. And uh, new data from the global market tracking firm from NPD Group finds that sales of lipstick and other lip makeup groups Forty-eight percent in the first quarter of this year over over the previous year, so it's more than twice as fast as any other products in the beauty category. So, um, if you have your money on an upcoming uh, recession, maybe we're already in it. We probably are, but um, the lipstick sales from the first quarter of this year may be predicted that long before you know there were other indicators. So, the lipstick effect, the lipstick. Index. And all of that happens from a little bug that we have murdered for thousands of years to get red lipstick. So, really fascinating sort of deep dive into the logistics of lipstick. And it all sort of stemmed from, you know, a man in the middle of the woods making carmine beetles and turning them into a red lipstick. So, I hope you enjoyed that segment on logistics of lipstick. And sort of as we round out today's show, thank you guys for tuning in. All of the replays, you can catch them on FreightWaves TV. You can also catch them in your favorite podcast player of choice. So Apple, Spotify, there's a dedicated Cyberly feed. So just search search for Cyberly in your favorite app, of choice. You can find more of my work and all of my socials over on my just main sort of central distribution website. And that's logistics.com. We will be back next week, 2pm Eastern Standard Time, right here live on FreightWaves TV. But until then, I will see you all real soon.